If you haven't been with us, if you're new, welcome. Uh, my name's Justin. I, I preach most weeks, unless I can find someone like Scott to place, take my place and, and get a little vacation once in a while. Um, but uh, what we've been doing is we've been walking through the Bible. We've just been looking at the different stories of Scripture and seeing how each one of those stories ties in together to tell this one grand story, and that story is all about Jesus, the one who made it possible for us to be reconciled with our God. Um, how many of you have ever, oh, no, oh, we got it. Uh, you thought I was going to forget this, didn't you? All right, all right. We got to do our, we've been walking through this. These are our symbols to help us remember this story. So let's see if we can do it from memory. Those of you who've been with us, we've got God, creation, fall, promise, flood, tower, patriarchs, exodus, and law, all right? Very good. Uh, you guys are awesome. Thanks for reminding me. Uh, if you, how many of you ever done a reading the Bible through a year? Uh, maybe you have, now this year we're doing Own It 365, and there are some, table, uh, some books on the back if you'd like to jump in with that or go to our website to find out how you can get into that. But that's been going through the major storylines of the Bible. Um, have you ever done the verse by verse, like where you start in Genesis, and you know how it goes if you've done this before. Genesis, you know, January 1st, resolutions, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start dieting, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start reading my Bible every day. You know the story. And you're going along, and at first it's exciting. You go through creation, and you go through the fall, and, and then there's the, the tower, right, and the flood, and, and all these, the patriarchs, some really cool stories there, and you get to the parting of the Red Sea, and the exodus, and all these plagues, and then, like a car hitting a brick wall, you run into the back half of exodus, right? Now, you know what I'm talking about, and when you get to that point, you start feeling this kid, right? And, and you walk through the details of the law and of the tabernacle and what priests are wearing and all of this stuff. And you're going, man, let's just do the one, two, skip a few and move ahead to Joshua, right? Let's get back to the battles. Let's get back to the, the good stuff. Well, what I want to show us this morning is there's actually a lot of good stuff in those details of the tabernacle itself. And I want to pause this morning and I want us to examine the beauty and the shadows of the tabernacle and how they point to Jesus. And there's a richness there and it just blew me away this week as I was studying. And I just want to share that with us this morning. Uh, question for you. Why did your parents have you? Now, I guess that sounds like an insult. Like, what in the world were they thinking? Um, why did your parents have... Anytime I have an excuse to show my dad's mustache, I take it. Um, why did your parents have... My mom told me that, that the reason they had us was to help them carry groceries from the car into the house, okay? And I'm still working through that in therapy twice a week. Um, so it's... No, I'm joking. Uh, once a week. So, no, they, why did they create us? They created us for a relationship, right? I mean, the reason my mom and dad had me was to know me and so that I could know them. And as I've grown up, we have had uh, this wonderful relationship uh, for the most part. Um, but the same reason is, is why God created us. He created us to have a relationship with him, okay? We're not just our little, his little minions down here on earth doing things, and he's up. God wants to have you. Do you understand? Do you hear that this morning? The reason God put you on this earth was so that you could know him, and so you could be known by him. 
But what we saw is there's this problem called sin that's come in and it's, it's disrupted, it's fractured this relationship. And what we saw for the last two weeks at Mount Sinai was God showed Israel his perfect standard. Remember he said, if you want to come into a relationship with me, why I created you, then you've got to keep this crazy high perfect standard. God knew that the Israelites could not keep the law. He knew no one could follow all 613 of these rules. And so what we see here is that God also instituted this system. And if these Israelites worked through this system, they could find forgiveness and they could find restoration in a relationship with their God, the reason he created us in the first place. Now, when we talk about approaching God, there's this paradox. And what I mean by that is it's kind of this contradiction of terms. In the first place, on the one hand, God created us for that relationship, and he wants intimacy with us, and God is a God that we can come to him. He wants us to curl up into his lap like a father, and he wants to protect us when we get scared by bad dreams at night. And he wants to tickle fight with us. And he wants to know us the way a daddy knows a little kid. But on the other hand, there's also this element of God where he's holy. The scripture says God lives in this unapproachable light. And if we saw his face, we would die. So how do we reconcile the intimacy that God wants as Abba Father and the holiness that he demands? And I was thinking about, and, and you often use this illustration, but I can't think of a better one. If you've read through the Chronicles of, of Narnia, remember that there's the beavers, and the children come to them, and they ask the beavers, man, is, is Aslan good? Now remember, Aslan in the story is a lion. And, and, and in Narnia, he represents God as this lion. And when the kids ask, Are he, is he safe? The beavers laugh at them. They go, no, he's not safe. He's a lion, you fool, right? Are lions safe? No, he's not safe but he's good. You see, he says, this lion, Aslan, he wants to protect you. He wants to love you. But in the same side, he, he is also a lion. And you do not approach a lion flippantly. And it's just like my parents growing up. Man, I knew they loved me more than anything else in the world, but I also had a healthy respect and fear of them. I knew if I cut out a line, they did not forget where the paddle was, Okay. And what I want us to look at this morning, our approach to God must be what I like to call drawing near with awe and fear. Drawing near with awe and fear that he created us for this intimate relationship, but we must come to God the right way with reverence and with obedience. And this morning, what we're going to look at is, is the way that the tabernacle shows us how we come to God the way he has given us to come to him. So the first thing we want to look at is we've got to come to him his way. If you look in Exodus, this is where they start describing the tabernacle. And, and God says to the people, to Moses, have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live with them. Now, remember, they're at Sinai. We said they're going to be at Sinai for over a year. He's been giving them the law, telling them all these details of, of how they're to live, how they're to come to him. And what God says here is he's going to build himself a sanctuary. Now, the New Living says sanctuary. Your version might say tabernacle or maybe even tent of meeting. That's kind of the idea of it. It was this place where God would meet with the people of Israel. So this is profoundly significant. And, and this is not God. Listen, God did not say, hey man, um, I, I, need, I need a house 
right? Landlord kicked me out. I don't have a place to stay. Let's make these little Israelites build me one, okay? That's not why God is having this. This is an elaborate visual aid that he is going to give to the people and to us this morning to show us what it looks like to come into his presence. Now, the Hebrew word here that's used is Shekinah. And you may have heard this before. It means to dwell or to abide, to, to, to live somewhere. And so when we're talking about the Shekinah glory, and when you say that, you got to say it like you're in a black Southern gospel church, the Shekinah glory, right? It just helps, it makes everything better. Um, I don't know. Uh, so when, you say, when, we, when we see this term Shekinah glory, it's referring to the presence of God. And he says the Shekinah glory, my presence, is going to come make its abode symbolically in this tabernacle. And it's, it's where you'll meet me. So he, they build this tabernacle. This is kind of like a replica of what it would have looked like at that time. Uh, the dimensions is about 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. Um, now, there are a couple of things here that you would look at. The first over, the, the large area outside of the tabernacle, in, uh, closed in by that fence, is the courtyard. And then inside the tabernacle itself, there were a couple of places. There was the holy place, and then there was the holy of holies, or, or some translations would say the most holy place. And these are two different rooms, and we'll, we'll break those down. Um, but, but one of the things that you see with this tabernacle is it had to be mobile. Because they were, remember, these guys are moving, and they're traveling from the desert of Sinai to the promised land in Canaan. So everything here had to be collapsible. It had to be portable. So this is like the, the Winnebago to the mansion that is coming later in Israel when God has Solomon build his temple. Okay, but right now they've got the, the mobile home version. Okay, so they build this tabernacle, and then look at what it says in Exodus 25. Verse 9, you must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. This is the reason that Exodus and Leviticus, that these are tough reads. Because he's going to give excruciatingly detailed instructions for how to build this thing. All the materials, how they're going to put it together, the dimensions of the tabernacle. I mean, he goes through all of it. In these instructions, and this is why God does this. Do you remember in the story of Noah? When God told Noah, he goes, if you want to be saved from this flood, you must build this ark exactly like I asked you to build it. These are the dimensions. These are the materials. These are the animals. This is how you bring them on. He walks them step by step. This is not because God has OCD. He's, he's showing this for a reason. And the illustration that he's showing man is that man can only come to God God's way. He says, this is exactly how you come. In obedience to exactly what I'm telling you, this is how you come to me. And listen, we don't get to tell God how we come to him. And for a lot of people, they kind of think that they, they can. And we'll go, well, man, hey, as long as you're relatively a good person, right? Do your taxes. Don't murder people. Certainly don't eat gluten, right? It's been a while since I've made fun of gluten. Um, he says, as long as you do all these, I mean, you, you be a generally a good person. God will, God will accept you. But listen, we don't get to call the shots. We don't get to tell God how we come to God. We don't decide the method. We don't decide, you know, what's, what to believe and what not to believe. It's at the tabernacle, you know how many, there was one gate. There was one gate at the entrance of the tabernacle. Just like to go to the ark, there was one door. And God's showing, if you want to come into my presence, there is one way to enter. If you want to be saved from the, the judgment of the flood of sin, there is one way to be saved. And, and it's going to be God telling us what that is. So the first thing is, if we want to come to God, 
He's showing us here, you got to come my way. The second thing he's going to show us is we must come admitting that we are helpless sinners in need of a substitute. If we're to come to him, someone is going to need to deal with our sin problem. So you go back to the tabernacle. We have the courtyard here. This is this outward area. Now, what you'll see, the first thing that you would see when you entered through the gate was this bronze altar. And as you would get to this altar, the word for altar in Hebrew, it means to slay. And in Latin, it means high. And so you put those two concepts together, and it was this high place for a slaughter. And it's not illustrated as much in this one, but the, the altar was raised a little bit off the ground. And what would happen is the, they would come to this place, and, and even the bronze, every, every single thing in these instructions, there's symbol going on here, there's symbolism. The bronze of the bronze altar, whenever you see bronze in the Bible, it's a symbol for judgment on sin. So it's showing this is the place where, where sin is going to be judged. And, and the first thing you would do when you entered through that gate is you would make a sacrifice at this bronze altar. So in the first step to approach a holy God was to admit that they were sinners and that sin must be punished by death. And so what they would do is they would take the blood of an innocent creature. You remember we talked about in the Passover that these, these sacrifices, they had to be a male. They had to be without blemish. There's a picture of Jesus. Jesus came to this world. He was perfect, and he, he was a male. And, and there was this clean list of animals, bo uh, bulls, sheep, uh, goats. The dirty animals were pigs and camels and, and uh, horses. You could only sacrifice clean animals at this bronze altar. And now here's what would happen. This is such a cool picture. Leviticus 1 says, Lay your hand on the animal's head, and the Lord will accept its death in your place to purify you, making you right with him. So what would happen is they would lay their hand on the head of the animal that they were about to sacrifice. Okay, this is an intense picture. And what would happen is they're identifying with that animal. And then, then what would happen next is they would, they would sacrifice. So the this, this sin, the guilt on them, was symbolically being transferred to this animal. And then the priest would slaughter this animal. He would then sprinkle the blood in front of that holy place in front of the tabernacle and he would burn the offering and pour the rest of it out onto the altar or below the altar now you think this is gross right i mean think this is a bloody disgusting affair and that's the exact picture that god intended why all the blood leviticus 17 for the life of the body is in its blood did you catch that he says the life of the body is seen in the blood. I've given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It's the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. He says, because of your sin, you owe me your life. Death is the payment of sin, but I'm going to take the blood shed on this innocent creature in your place. Hebrews 9, in fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, it almost sounds like, like um, a bit of, a, bit of a, 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 a contradiction here, where blood is actually used to clean. And so everything gets bloody, and he says it's through that blood that there is purification. He says there's no shedding of blood, I, I will not forgive you. So this would happen, and, and this blood that was, was shed on their part. Now, one of the interesting things that would happen here at the bronze altar. On the altar, there were these four horns on the edge of the altar. And each of these, in Scripture, the, a horn is, is a symbol of strength or power. And what the priest would do is he'd take the blood of that animal, and he would smear it on these four horns. And what it was showing was that the blood had the power 
had the strength of forgiveness of sins to cover the sin. And that's why you look forward in Luke, and there's this really cool verse where it says, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us, that Jesus' blood is the ultimate one that had the power to forgive our sins, to cover our sins. So we must come to God his way. We must come admitting that we deserve death because of our sin and that we need, it's either going to be us dying for our sins or someone else dying for our sins. And then number three, we must come cleansed. Now there was priests that would do the majority of the work at the tabernacle. These were guys from the tribe of Levi. They were the ones, they call them mediators. They were the ones that would go between God and his people. The people couldn't go into the tabernacle. Only the priests could. They went representing the people to God. They were this go-between who would serve in the tabernacle and, and, and go between God and man. And there was a couple of things that they would do. First of all, the bronze altar, anybody could go to and make sacrifices. But beyond this, it was just the priests. And the priests, after they were done making these sacrifices, the next thing that they were told to do was go to this bronze basin. And they would wash their hands and their feet. Because you think about what they've just done. They've slaughtered these animals, and they're sprinkling blood, and they're pouring it out, and there's just blood everywhere. And God says, before you can come into my holy place, you got to get cleaned up, man. And you, you got to wash yourself. And God says, before you can come into my presence, you must be cleansed by the washing of the water. And so the priests would, would wash themselves, and then... Oh, there it is, Bron Basin. And then, and we're going to have to kind of skip over points four and five here. But when we go into the holy place, again, this is just the priests that could go into the holy place. You're going to see three things. The first of which was the table of the bread of the presence, okay? And, and here's what you saw at the table. There were these 12 loaves of bread, and they represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And these priests, every once a week, they would eat the bread... Um, on the Sabbath day. And what this bread represented was that God desires a relationship with us. And so they would eat with him. And in Hebrew culture, eating with each other, it was this really significant, intimate thing. If we're going to eat with each other, that means that we're close. And God is showing, I want you to come. I want you to fellowship with me. And I want you to see that I'm going to provide. Remember the manna he's been throwing at them literally out of the sky. He's showing them here, I am going to provide a way for you to come and feast and be with me in my presence. And the next thing you saw was this golden lampstand. Okay, what the, in the, the Hebrew word for that, menorah, you've probably heard that. And this lampstand, they're in this tabernacle, and there was, it was completely enclosed, so there was no natural light. And this lampstand was to be burning continually, day and night, so that these priests could see what they were doing. And so it's this symbol of saying, you can't come in, you can't see me, you can't see what I've asked you to do, unless there is a light to show you the way. And then the last thing that was in there was this altar of incense, and they would come to this altar, and they would be burning. They would actually take the fire from that burnt offering outside, and they would put it on the altar of incense, and there would be these fragrances that they would lift into the air to God, the symbol of our prayers to God that are pleasing aroma in his sight and our, our lives offered to him, but they could only offer it after they had dabbed blood on the horns of that altar of incense, showing the only way we can come to God is through the blood. So there's all these cool sim symbols, and we don't have time to get into them further, um, but this is, this is where I really want to land this morning. The last point here, we must come through Jesus. Now look, there was the holy place where the priests could come and they could do their thing. But then there was this holy of holies. And we're going to see there was only one day a year where one priest a year could go into this room. This room was separated by a veil. 
And, and the priest would come through this room. And the only thing in this room, about 15 by 15, there was this ark. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. And in this ark, and you can see it, it was all enclosed, but they're opening it up there so you could see it. There was a couple things. There was Aaron's staff. There was a jar of manna. And there was the, the two tablets of stone. And these were placed in there, again, for symbols that we can't get to this morning. Um, but what would happen is there was on top of this, this ark, there was this thing called the mercy seat. Now, this mercy seat was seen as the focal point of the entire tabernacle. This is where, it was on this seat, it was at this place that the Shekinah glory, that the presence of God himself was seen to dwell. And, and, and so I want to break that down for a second. When we look at the mercy seat, well, the word mercy, it means not getting what we deserve. So the people of Israel, they deserved to be punished for their sin. And so if they are not going to be punished... If they're not getting what they deserve, it's going to be because of God's mercy. And that's why they call it the mercy seat. Now, one of the really cool things, again, all of these things symbolize something. And the mercy seat was made of wood, but it was covered in gold. And what we see the symbolizing is that the, the wood represented Christ's humanity. See, Jesus is our mercy seat. And the wood shows that God came to this earth as a man, as a plain man like you and I. But there was also gold, which represented his deity. That God was not just like another man, he was also God. So the wood and the gold, the God and man, and Jesus is our mercy seat. Now the word is this big fancy uh, term called propitiation. And all that means is it means to turn away wrath. And it was at this mercy seat that God's wrath toward the people of Israel would be turned away. And we see that it's because of Jesus that God's wrath toward us can be turned away. And then on the top of this mercy seat, there were these two angels. And these angels were covered in gold. And they would reach out and they, their wings would touch each other. And the symbol here was that these, they're called cherubim. And these cherubim are always seen in scriptures as guarding God's holiness. You think of the, the picture in Revelation, and God is enthroned at his, in, in heaven, and there's these, these cherubim, they're circling his throne, and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And they, day and night, they're singing this song. Now, it's not, they're not guarding God's holiness because he's afraid that someone's going to come in and violate him. It's a symbol of saying, you sinful man can't just come into my presence. You remember when Adam and Eve were banned from the Garden of Eden? What did God put there to guard the, the, the gates? He put a cherubim there with flaming swords to guard symbolically man's ability to come back and fellowship with God as they experienced before sin. And this veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place had cherubim on the veil, symbolizing the protection and the, the set-apartedness of God and his holiness. He says, you do not just waltz into my presence. And so we see this Ark of the Covenant, and, and here's what would happen. Only the high priest could enter the most holy place, and only one time a year. And this day was set apart, and it was called the, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, which means the Day of Covering, because what it represented was that what the priest was about to do would cover all of the sins of all of the people for the entire year. This is a big deal. And so this priest, this one day a year would enter, and if anyone else went in, if the high priest himself went in there on any other day than this, they would fall down dead. And in Jewish tradition, it's not totally been able to be verified, but Jewish tradition is they would actually tie an, uh, a rope around the ankle of the high priest, and they would go into the Holy of Holies on this day, and they had these bells all around on their outfits, and if they 
all of a sudden they couldn't hear those bells ringing for a little while. And, they, and, the, and the priest had presumably died. They would take this rope and they'd pull the priest back out. Because if anyone else went in there to go get him, they would die too. So it was this, this, this very terrible picture of what it looks like to come into God's presence. And Aaron, the high priest, he would go through all the normal sacrifice routines. He would go through to the bronze altar. He would wash himself. do the whole. Because remember, Aaron, even though he's a high priest, he's a sinner just like you and I. So he has to go through this process. And then he comes, and the next thing he would do is he'd present before the Lord these two goats. And these goats, they would cast lots in front of the tabernacle, and whichever goat drew the short straw would, have, would be slaughtered, would be killed, and, and, and that's the blood. They would catch the blood in the basin and bring it into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. Now, we'll get back to the other goat because life's not going to be great for him either. Um, but what we'll see is he enters into the Holy of Holies with the blood of this chosen goat, and he's going to sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Now, if the priest did any of this wrong, he would die. I mean, no pressure, right? I mean, you think about, I mean, I get stressed out putting together a Lego set. And this guy has got to come into this process and do ex- everything exactly how the Lord has asked him to do. Now, once a year, the blood was sprinkled on top of the mercy seat, symbolizing God's wrath being turned away from the people for another year. It would kind of like an extended warranty, right? Like, we're another year that I will not punish you, will not punish the nation for their sins because of this act. Now, what about that other goat? In Leviticus 16, it tells us, uh, when Aaron had finished purifying the most holy place and the tabernacle and the altar, he must present the live goat. All right, and this is such a cool picture. He will lay both of his hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness, rebellion, and sins of the people of Israel. In this way, he will transfer the people's sins to the head of the goat. Then a man specially chosen for the task will drive the goat into the wilderness. As the goat goes into the wilderness, it will carry all the people's sins upon itself into a desolate land. This is where we get the term scapegoat. So this this goat symbolically takes all of the sins of the people of Israel. It's placed on him. Now he's driven away into the desert. As far as from the east is from the west, they will never see the goat, meaning they will never see their sins again. God's forgiven them. Now you may ask yourself, okay, we worked through a lot. It was a little Sunday schooly today. But we, we work through all this process, and you go, but Justin, you don't understand. See, I, I've got a dirty heart, and there's things I've done that prevent me from stepping into the throne room of God, that no shedding of the blood of a bull, bull or a goat, no washing till I'm blue in the face is ever going to fix. How can I come into the presence of God when my conscience is so dirty? And Hebrews 9, it speaks to this. And it says, listen, you can sacrifice bulls and goats till the, till the cows come home. I guess that's too fitting. Um, and, and he says, but listen, it will never clean your conscience. It never will. And acknowledge that. I mean, these animals, they can't die for men. They're not perfect. And so what, and what it says is it can, it can take the place of the Israelites' death. It can take away immediate punishment, but it can't clean your conscience. I mean, think about a little kid, a little four-year-old who gets into a cookie jar, okay? Uh, Don't be fooled by his innocent look. That kid is the spawn of Satan, right? So this kid, he goes in, he steals a cookie. He is covered in chocolate, guilty as charged. Now listen, this little kid can, he could be, you know, crafty, and he could clean himself up, 
He could, he could go, he could wash himself, he could throw his clothes in the laundry, wash those up like every four-year-old knows how to do. And he could go through this whole process. In fact, he could even have one of his siblings say, I'm going to take the punishment for you. Okay? Mom and dad will spank me. I'll say that I took the cookies out of the cookie jar, uh, maybe even frames them, put some cookie crumbs in their bed. Right? He does the whole little dastardly plan, sets them up. Now listen, the kid can be cleaned on the outside, and he can even watch one of his siblings take the punishment for him. But that little kid still has a dirty conscience in front of his parents. He knows exactly what he's done. And no outward cleansing can ever change that. Listen, we can go to church every week for the rest of our lives. We can start giving more to charity or, or tithing to the church, which I recommend. That's my paycheck. Um, <laughs> Now, you can, you can continue to do all these outward things, okay? You can, you, can, you can continue to, you know, work at soup kitchens, or you can try to, and maybe sometimes we try to punish ourselves. Like, we think of if I kind of treat myself harshly enough, then I will be able to pay for my own sins because of what I've done. But listen, all the self-punishment, all of the good deeds can never clean our hearts, can never clean our conscience, in Hebrews 10, it tells us then what, what's going on here with all the tabernacle. Why would they go through all this process if it didn't even clean them sin, their sin up? Hebrews 10 says the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. Do you hear what he just said, the author of Hebrews? He says the tabernacle was like a shadow showing what the real thing to come is like. Imagine for a second your spouse, okay? Now you love your spouse. Think about the difference between your spouse and your spouse's shadow, okay? There's a big difference, right? I hope, right? Yes, yes, okay. You, you come home, and, and if it was just your spouse's shadow that you had a relationship, hey, honey, I'm home, and you kiss the shadow, and you try to have a conversation with the shadow. You can't have a relationship. The shadow is only an outline. It's only a reflection of what really is. Your spouse is the substance. The shadow is just a preview of shade of what they look like. And he says in the same way, the tabernacle is just a shadow of the real thing that was to come. See, he says the sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year. But they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. He goes, they, could, they continued to make sacrifices every year, but it never took care of their ultimate sin problem. In verse 4, it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Because no matter how many you sacrifice, it's never going to take care of your sin problem. That is why Christ came into the world. You see, Christ is the reality of the shadow of the tabernacle. And what we see here in John chapter 1, when it says the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. You know what that word dwelt means? It's the same word for tabernacle. He says, God came to earth in flesh. He tabernacled. He made a temporary dwelling with his people here on earth. The presence of God on earth. But not in the tabernacle in the wilderness. But in the person of Jesus. And what we see with Jesus, remember what he said to the Pharisees? He said, you, you can tear down this temple, but in three days later, I will be lifted up again. Jesus was the tabernacle. Jesus is the place where God and man can meet. 
So how do we enter into his presence today? How does Jesus do a better thing than the tabernacle ever did? Hebrews goes on, verse 19 of chapter 10. So dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place, the holy of holies. How do we enter there? Because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. Remember when Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the literal temple, it was torn in two. That veil was 60 feet high in the temple, and it tore from the top down, something only God could have done. This would have been terrifying to all the high priests who knew you could only enter there once a year on the Day of Atonement as the high priest. And now that veil is ripped open, and they can see that Holy of Holies. That would be a terrifying moment, because he says when Jesus died, he made a way for you and I to be able to enter into the very presence, the Shekinah glory of God. It says in verse 21, and since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, Jesus is our high priest. He's the one that we enter into God's presence through. Let us go right into the presence of God. Some translations say it's, let's boldly approach. Let's go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. See, if we want a, a clean conscience today, if we want a clean heart, if we want to be changed from the inside out, not just outward ritual, but a real change, that's only going to come through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we no longer need to come making sacrifices. We no longer need a high priest who's going to come day after day, year after year. Jesus made the final and eternal sacrifice as our high priest, giving us a backstage all exclusive access to God and entering into his presence. And it says when he finished, when he died and rose again, it says he sat down at the right hand of the Father. You know why he sat down? That was a symbol. That was a mic drop. That was him saying, I'm done. I sacrificed one time, and that one sacrifice is good for all sins for all times. You don't need to keep sacrificing bulls and goats. You don't need to keep doing this over and over again. I did it once, and that's good for all time. So what we see is Jesus is the fulfillment of every single one of these pictures in the tabernacle. Jesus is the tabernacle. He's the place where God's glory rests and you and I can meet him. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the one way that we enter into the presence of God. Jesus is the burnt offering. He's the one that died for us, that we identified with. We place our hand on his head and our sins are transferred to his. He's the high priest. He's the go-between between us and God, interceding right now on our behalf as we continue to sin today. He's the washing. He is the word. He's the one that cleanses our hearts. He's the light of the world. He's the way that we can see God and see what he has for us. He's the pleasing aroma unto our Father when he came out of the water being baptized. God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He's the sacrificial goat, the one that was slaughtered so that we didn't have to be. He is also the scapegoat, the one that our sins were placed on so they will be separated from us as far as the east is from the west. He is the mercy seat. He's the place where God's wrath has been turned away once and for all. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Can I be more clear? Right? It's all about Jesus. And listen, we no longer need to come to a tabernacle. We, never, we no longer need to go to a specific geographic place anymore. They, that, that was the one place where they could worship God, the one place where they could offer sacrifices. And do you know where today, the Shekinah glory, God's presence, it no longer dwells in a tabernacle or even in the temple. You know where it dwells? Right here. 
right here. Look at 1 Corinthians. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and the spirit of God lives in you. He now makes his abode, his tabernacle, his holy presence is in each one of us. Those of us in this room who are believers today, he is dwelling in our midst with us. And listen, it's not, it's not this church building, okay? This drywall is not holy, okay? It may have holes in it, but it's not holy. Okay, this, it's not a building, it's not the Peninsula Grace Gymnasium, it's not the structure, it's the people of God. We are holy because of Jesus. The Ark of the Covenant is gone forever. Not even Indiana Jones could find it again, right? Praise God, we don't need to kill bulls and goats anymore. Jesus paid it all. And now in the person of Jesus, we can draw near. We can draw into intimacy with God, but we do it with awe and fear, knowing the only way that we can come into the place where even angels fear to tread is because of the finished work of our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we come this morning and we acknowledge that we are far from perfect. And each of us in this room do not have to look very far to see the things that we've done to dirty our conscience, to prevent us from being able to come into your throne room to be able to, to, to have a relationship with you on our own. But Lord, I pray for those, of, for those in this room that don't know Jesus, and maybe they've been trying to clean up their act and they're, they're, by outward actions, by good behavior, by self-loathing or self-punishment. And those of us as believers who continue to struggle to go back to those lies, Lord, that we would come to you in the name of Jesus. And we're going to take communion today together, Father, and we do that and acknowledge that's Jesus' crushed body. It's his spilled blood that he shed his blood on our behalf to take the sins that we owed death for. He took them on himself once and for all. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father now. And those of us who come before you, we can boldly enter that throne room. We acknowledge that you're a lion. We don't come in flippantly. We don't just come in and treat you like a bro. We know that you're a holy God and you're a good God, but you're also our Father. And you beckon us to come as your children, washed in the blood of Jesus. May we come in no other name, but may we boast in no other name than the name of Jesus. It's that name that we love. It's that name that we draw near into your house through his temple. And then we pray these things as a sweet aroma to you in the blood of Jesus. Amen.